Well, please turn in your Bibles to the letter of James in the New Testament, letter of James, just after the book of Hebrews, and chapter 4, James 4, I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. The title of the sermon this morning is The Cause of Conflict, The Cause of Conflict, James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Well, let's just pray briefly. Gracious Heavenly Father, be our comfort this morning through Your Word and by Your Spirit and in Your Son. Rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Direct us in the paths that we should walk. And humble us that we might humble ourselves under your mighty hand, knowing there is a hand that cares very deeply for his people. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So I've preached a few times from the letter of James over the last couple of years, and chapter one, a, a couple of months ago, a couple of sermons there in chapter 3 about the, the taming of the tongue, and, um, and now chapter 4. James is a letter, if you like, uh, it's a biblical counseling manual uh, for mature and wise Christian living. That's why James is used in much of the biblical counseling material that, that many of you have studied even in this congregation, CCEF, ACBC, the likes of David Powlison, Paul Tripp, Heath Lambert, have written extensively on, on this topic. James is used a lot. The letter is written to, to Jewish Christians who have been scattered through persecution and were perhaps meeting in various house churches. And James wants to encourage them on towards mature and wise Christian living. That's a, their themes there, maturity and wisdom. And if you like, the wise Christian is the mature Christian. It is that theology worked out in your life. And he says that this maturity and wisdom is produced and, and can be measured by a person's response to, number one, their trials. You see that in, in chapter one. Uh, number two, by their obedience to the word. We see that in, in chapter two. And then by the control of the tongue. The taming of the tongue is a measure of how mature and wise you are. Then in chapter four, he says that the condition of their relationships with one another and with the world reveals 
the maturity of the relationship they have with God or not. He opens the chapter, as we've read, talking about their, their fighting with one another. And then he gets to the very root of it all, and he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So there is a certain kind of friendship that fuels fighting. A certain kind of friendship that actually fuels fighting. Those kind of people that make that kind of friendship are unwise and they are immature. And isn't that what Paul, the apostle, says to us in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, I can't address you as, as mature but as babies. And then he tells them why. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not being merely human? In other words, adversarial, argumentative people are immature and worldly. And that's what James is dealing with here. I want us to think this morning of James as a spiritual doctor, a spiritual physician. In chapter 3, Dr. James says, show me your tongue. Because just as the tongue is an indicator of physical health, you know when you used to go to the doctor and he'd say, stick out your tongue and say, ah, because he could tell from your tongue what was going on in your body. Just as the tongue is an indicator of physical health, it's also an indicator of spiritual health. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, let me see your relationships with others and I'll tell you about your relationship with the world and with God. James is like um, that character, The Good Doctor. I don't know, he's a very famous, well-known TV series, The Good Doctor, um, where Sean Murphy is a brilliant doctor who looks at the symptoms and then he's, he has a mind to discern. He goes right beneath the symptoms to the cause of the problem that many others miss. Then he diagnoses the problem accurately and then he prescribes just the right course of action to cure it but it often takes deep surgery. So I want us to let Dr. James examine us here this morning, friends, as we look at this more closely. But you need to be prepared to receive some spiritual surgery by the Holy Spirit if you're going to benefit from the inspired apostles' words. So first, the symptoms and causes of the problem that is here. It's not worthy to say that James opens with a, with a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Interesting, he's just outlined what heavenly wisdom looks like in contrast to earthly wisdom in the latter part of chapter 3. You can see it there as you cast your eyes over it. And he ends, interestingly, on a note of peace that heavenly wisdom leads to a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. So peacemakers are wise. We're not talking about peace at all costs here because it is righteous peacemaking. But peacemakers, in, in the right sense, they love to make peace, reconciling people to God and, and to one another. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Jesus says. So James ends chapter 3 on peace as the fruit of wisdom from above, and all of a sudden he starts talking about quarrels and fights in the church. So the reason for that contrast is that conflict like this is not wisdom from above. 
It is earthly. It is unspiritual. It is demonic even, as he explains in verse 16 of chapter 3. And so he poses that question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Quarrels, the word quarrels there, referring to long-term bitterness against someone. Or long-standing disputes, like with a war between countries or on the individual level, arguing about the same kinds of things over and over again with the same people. Long-held grudges are in view here. Quarrels. And then fights are those moments when the quarrels flare up into action in a specific conflict. Conflict over money, family, decisions to do something or not. And when people are angry and in conflict with someone, they ask, what causes that? And the fact is, too often we blame our circumstances, people, or the actions of others. You made me angry. You ever said that? You made me angry. You started it. Kids in here, how many times have, have you said that to your sibling? You started it. It wasn't me, it was you. Well, he may have started it, but you probably finished it. Something you said just triggered me. Trigger. That's a, I've been hanging out with the with the young adults a bit lately, triggered, this is a common thing. You get, you get triggered by stuff now. It's other things, they trigger you and it makes you angry. Oh, I was just stressed out from work. I didn't mean to raise my voice to you. I'm feeling a bit under the weather. The kids have been a nightmare. Motherhood is tiring. That's why I bit your head off, husband. Circumstances, people, the actions of others. But Dr. James says, no. He says the cause of your outward conflict is first an inward conflict. Look at what he says next. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Before there are quarrels and fights among you, there are warring passions within you. Very important to get that. Dr. James takes a spiritual x-ray of the problem and he sees beneath the surface of that presenting problem of quarrels and fights and looks to the cause in the heart. That, that word for um, passions there in Greek is hedonon, hedonon, from where we derive our English word hedonism. Hedonism, meaning selfish pleasure-seeking desires. If any of you uh, uh, like John Piper, you might have heard of that phrase, Christian hedonism. But we're not talking about Christian hedonism here. That's not what this word means. It's a selfish, pleasure-seeking desire in the heart, the battle for control. There's a pleasure war going on in the heart. The heart says, what single thing will bring me most pleasure in this particular moment? So fullest, uh, selfish pleasure directs my desires. I love it when I get what I want. I don't say, God, your will be done. I say, my will be done. Like the person Jesus says in, in Luke 8, who hears the word, but it's choked by the cares and riches and hedonon, pleasures of life. Selfish pleasures rather than what pleases God 
battle for control in the human heart, and it's happening every day on the inside. It's happening in your families, in our church. It's happening in nations, warring passions. And friends, here's something for adults and for children. A big problem in the visible church and something, very interestingly, that Paul says marks godlessness in the last days in 2 Timothy 3 is disobedience and disrespect for parents. And you could add parents-in-law. And that's for adults here and that's for children in here. Because Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, those kinds of people, they are lovers of pleasure. Hadenon, not lovers of God. You see, because we're made to worship, our hearts are being directed by something. And in our folly, we exchange worship of God for worship of that which He has created. Romans 1.25 So the heart, as John Calvin so famously put it, the heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory. And when man starts to worship the creation and not the creator, it is inevitable intellectually and sociologically that man will begin to devour man. When the glory of God is rejected in man, who is made in the image of God, in covenant with this God, and when that glory is replaced by desires for glory of worldly thinking, then you get man on a self-centered course of self-destruction. Fights, quarrels, murder, arguments, divorce, church splits, abortion, wars, and so on. Division and destruction. And so James then looks further at these warring passions and he sees the development of desires. Verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you can remember... Cast your mind back to chapter 1, or glance at it now, chapter 1, verse 14. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, that, that we tempt ourselves with our own sinful desires. The devil didn't make you do it. You made you do it. You can even have a desire for something good that goes wrong. So Paul Tripp, one of those men I mentioned to you excellent biblical counselor and teacher on these things, he puts it like this. This is a good quote to remember. A desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. A desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. That could be a good desire for marriage. We, we, we're speaking a little bit about that in the uh, in the Q&A, elders' Q&A in Sunday school. It could be a good desire for marriage, but when it becomes our chief aim, our ruling desire and motivation, it becomes a bad thing, it becomes an idol. Then we are worshipping marriage, you see? Or how about a, a happy marriage? That's a good thing to desire, but when that happy marriage rules your heart, you've made it into an idol, and chaos will ensue. When my wife and I were early married, first couple of years, um, she wanted me to, to, to change the fridge door. It was opening one way. She wanted it opening the other. I was fine with it the way it opened. 
And, um, you know, sh she should have known that, that marrying me, that, and I've said this to some of you before, DIY, DIY means don't involve yourself. <laughs> and I didn't have a lot of good tools, and, and I came home from work, and she'd been wanting this fridge change the door the different direction, and, and I just wanted to relax, you know? I mean, I deserve to relax, right? My comfort. I come home, I've worked hard, I deserve to relax. I don't need to fix the fridge and change the door, it's fine. And she was wanting it done, and uh, so I got my little toolbox out, and I, I started, I got the door off, but I couldn't get it back on. So then an argument ensued, and the, the fridge stayed on, the fridge door stayed on the floor for two days. I don't know what happened to the food within the fridge, but there was a feud between the two of us, I made comfort in that moment, my idol. She made a handyman husband her idol. And neither of us got it. Desire and do not have, so you murder. Covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And uh, Because then whatever stands in the way of your idol has to be removed, you see. And that's often another person. An unfulfilled desire or a craving for something so soon turns into a demand for it. I must have it. Turns from I want it to I must have it. Now it's a need then that becomes a demand. You must give it to me. I want it. I must have it. You must give it to me. And when you don't give it to me, I will punish you. Then I murder. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. So you see how that ruling desire, as Paul Tripp says, dehumanizes another person because that person is now an object of, or an obstacle to what I want. Instead of that person being an object of my love, they're an obstacle to what I desire, what I must have. That person is now Either the way I will fulfill my selfish pleasure-seeking desire for control or respect or freedom or the way I, I get them out the way so that I can get it. So I might not commit murder, but I commit murder in the heart. Isn't that what our Lord Jesus is basically saying in the Sermon on the Mount when he relates anger in the heart to murder? And isn't that phrase, if looks could kill, right? If looks could kill, it might be a look that kills. Or it might be giving someone the cold shoulder that really is saying, you are dead to me. But it may be a ruling desire that does lead to physical murder. Murder in the womb. Because that baby has become an obstacle to my selfish desire for freedom or responsibility. And this country is blazing a trail. Also in the murder displayed in made medical assistance in dying. So Dr. James takes that spiritual x-ray and says every fight and quarrel is an inside job. It's an inside job. Before the war is among you, it is within you. You make you sin. So that the argumentative, angry, easily offended person has a heart problem. They have a heart problem, a desire problem in the heart. And look, as, as you carry on in the text, even when this kind of person prays, they don't get anywhere because their heart is wrong. 
they don't see God to be a wise and loving father. Instead, they see him as a, a handy vending machine. Look at verses 2a and, and into verse 3. You, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Could it be that this morning you ask and you do not receive because you're praying with the wrong attitude, the wrong, your hearts are wrong. You're praying godless prayers, not true prayer. Your prayers have nothing to do with His will being done, nothing to do with the kingdom of God, only your hadenon, your pleasures are in view. David Henderson, in uh, a book called Culture Shift, writes helpfully here, it's a fairly long quote, but it's, it's simple enough, and I I think it's worth reading. He says, We have tended to turn the Christian faith into a relationship through Christ with a God who is the divine vending machine in the sky, there to meet our every need. I'll preface that with felt need. Unhappy, unattractive, unsuccessful, unmarried, unfulfilled. Come to Christ and He'll give you everything you ask for. We forget God is not primarily in the business of meeting our felt needs. When we make him out to be, we squeeze him out of his rightful place at the center of our lives and put ourselves in his place. God is in the business of being God. Christianity cannot be reduced to God just meeting people's felt needs. And when we attempt to do so, we invariably distort the heart of the Christian message. That's David Henderson in the book Culture Shift. Friends, when you pray, do you ultimately seek fellowship with God as your Father through faith in God the Son, in dependency on God the Spirit? Is that what you're ultimately seeking when you pray? Or just put money in the slot, divine venue machine, give me what I feel like I need. When you pray, are your prayers shaped by God's desires for your holiness? and His glory in the world. If so, you'd be praying less that God would change that difficult person or situation in your life, and more that He would change your heart and mortify those passions that wage war and align them with God's desires recorded in His Word. Then people with whom you once quarreled, instead of being obstacles to your happiness, actually become means to your sanctification. Means to your sanctification. See, these people that James is addressing have perhaps drifted away from God and in pursuit of their sinful passions, such that they prayed prayerless prayers. There's no fellowship with God and thus no contentment in their lives that are full of strife. I have to ask the question, is that you? Conflict in relationships. Unanswered prayer. Conflict in relationships. Unanswered prayer. Maybe you are asking with the wrong attitude, seeing God as that divine vending machine and not as a wise, loving Father who gave His Son to make you His own. God will not answer self-centered, hedonistic praying. So Dr. James has revealed the symptoms of the problem, quarrels and fights. And he's shown the cause of the problem with that x-ray, the cause being self-centered passions warring within the heart that lead to prayerlessness. 
And now he comes to the diagnosis of the condition. So the problem and the symptoms and causes. Now the diagnosis is going to tell us what this, this is called. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is the central principle in this passage. The diagnosis, and it is this. Sinful human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery and friendship with the world. Sinful human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery and friendship with the world. The primary problem with us is not that we don't love one another enough. It is that we don't love God enough. That is the primary problem. There's a deep problem with spiritual unfaithfulness in the church here. And this is sharp language from James. It's actually designed to wake us up to the reality and danger of what's going on in our lives when we bicker and feud with one another. You adulterous people. Imagine me saying that to you. You adulterous people. Directly from the pulpit or in a counseling session perhaps. The, the word is literally adulteresses, referring to the whole church in, in, in the feminine way. So what he's doing is he's drawing on the Old Testament theme of God as husband of his people in covenant with them. Isaiah 54 verse 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And how the prophets would warn Israel about the reality and dangers of wandering away and having affections for false gods. And of course we know then, don't we, that the Lord Jesus comes from heaven as the husband of his bride, the church. And in that famous passage in Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That parallel even with the husband representing Christ and the wife representing the church in that gospel picture in marriage. Christ, the, the husband, the bridegroom of the church, gives himself up for her by going to the cross for her, by redeeming her with his own blood as he dies for her sins and then promises to sanctify her until she is pure for that day in Revelation and the marriage supper of the Lamb and the final consummation of a heavenly marriage. And therefore, I as a Christian, in light of my Savior, Jesus Christ, am called to live in submission to my husband, Jesus, in all spheres of life. And yet when I, as part of the bride, set my affection on something else and let my sinful, pleasure-seeking passions rule, I'm, be I'm being a spiritual adulterer. I am wandering away. I'm being disloyal. And James explains it like this. He says, look, do you not know that, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says that that you're feuding amongst yourselves. You're feuding in your marriages. You're feuding um, with, with each other. You're feuding with other churches is ultimately because you are spiritual adulterers who have set your affections on the world. You've become worldly. You've become worldly. 
And I suggest we're far more comfortable with the world than we might care to admit. Brothers and sisters, the problem with the church is not that it is too heavenly-minded, but that it is too worldly-minded. It's too worldly-minded. That means you and me. If we were more heavenly-minded, we wouldn't see the strife we see in our marriages and families and churches and across different churches. We wouldn't be feuding with other Christians on social media. But we all too easily make friends with the world. And you know when a person's drifting towards that spiritual adultery and friendship with the world, you know their affections change. Their affections change. They are prayerless. And if they pray, when you, when you examine them and when you ask them how they're praying, you see they're praying with the wrong attitudes. They don't love God's Word. They don't want anyone to speak in godly ways to them and call them to repentance according to His Word because they'd rather be somewhere else with someone else. Their affections are for the world and worldly things. They're influenced by the world. Unlike the blessed man in Psalm 1, you remember Psalm 1, the blessed man, what describes the blessed man, the happy man, is he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He is not in love with the world. He is not friends with the world. He's not influenced by the world. Instead, he loves the word. His delight is in the law of the Lord. My grandparents used to say to me, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Some of you might have heard that well-known saying, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. In other words, your friendships reveal your character and where you're heading in life. And the book of Proverbs puts it like this, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So show me your friends, I'll show you your future. You can be wise if you walk with wise people as a principle, but if fools are your friends, you will suffer harm. That's your future. Be absolutely clear here. James is saying, show me who you're friends with and I'll show you your current state and your future. Because if you're friends with the world, your future is not good because you're an enemy of God. And if that relationship does not change, you will die under his enmity and remain under it in hell. And in the next uh, few verses, in, in later on in chapter 4, he's talking about the brevity of life. It's just brief, folks. And if you die as an enemy of God, you will remain under his just judgment in hell. And any time I'm choosing my will and way, selfish ambition, evil, disorder, all of that stuff, it ensues and I stand as an enemy of God. The question is, whom do you love? God or the world? And the thing is this, you can't love both. You can't love both. The Apostle John is right. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty clear, right? Love the world, love of the Father's not in you. So I hope James is doing some spiritual surgery amongst us today. He, he's exposed the symptoms 
of conflict amongst Christians. And then he's done that x-ray and he, and he sees into the heart the cause being selfish desires, passions warring within the heart to rule. And then he makes the overall diagnosis. This condition is called spiritual adultery that is friendship with the world. And that has got a chilling implication of enmity with God. This might be your diagnosis this morning. It should hit home with all of us here today to some degree. Is there conflict in your life? Is friendship with the world marking your life? James is a good doctor though. And he doesn't just cut us open and leave us on the table condemned. He now turns us to the cure for the problem. The cure for quarreling and fighting. And it is God's jealous grace. God's jealous grace. The cure for the problem. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? James turns our hearts to the love of God. His jealous grace. The, the quote there in verse 5, this is a, probably the most difficult part of the letter to, to interpret correctly, but the quote is not a direct quote from Scripture, if you examine it and seek for a cross-reference. But it is a summing up of what God says in places like, the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verse 5, you shall not bow, bow down to them or to serve them, that is, other gods, for I, the Lord your God, and am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Because, friends, true love, divine love, is jealous. It demands exclusive love from its lover. God loves with such a pure love and he's so faithful and this love is so costly that he gave his own son. How can he tolerate an unfaithful, wandering heart? He can't. A heart prone to have a love affair with the world. You see, we may be divided at times in our affections for God, but he is single-minded in his affection for us. God will brook no rivals, friends. And this is good. He will brook no rivals. He is jealous for his people. And if you are his, he will go to extreme measures to keep you. In his jealous love, he may providentially let you wander in your spiritual adultery and friendship with the world, in a state of constant strife, anger, and dissatisfaction, until, like the prodigal son, when you are eating pig slop, you come to your senses and you return to his outstretched arms. His jealousy for you may mean discipline for you. As Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines those he loves. It's not always a discipline in direct response to a, a, a worldliness, but it includes a direct response to worldliness. But his jealous love also means that he gives more grace. So there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. You've got to remember that. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is 
sin in you. There is infinitely more grace in his atonement for your sin than there is sin in you. And when he is your husband, you get the whole Jesus in his atoning work for sin, in justification, and in his purging work of sin, in sanctification, until one day that freeing work from sin forever in your glorification. You get the whole Christ. So realize, friends, you're not in this battle by yourself. Jesus walked on the earth. He faced temptations from the devil and the world, but he never had a sinful desire, and he did not make friends with the world, but instead he died to save some out of the world. And that some is us today if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what? He battles on your behalf, brothers and sisters. His grace, you see, is deeper than any war of the heart that anyone in this room faces. You see, God demands exclusive loyalty from us, but he gives the grace in abundance to help us be loyal and resist the lure of the world. His grace is greater. He gives more grace. But this grace, this jealous grace, it is for the humble. Therefore, James says, quoting Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace is coming to the humble. So to receive the grace, this is what you need to do at first. You need to humbly admit that Dr. James described you. I sometimes find joy in obedience, but so often I wander. I make friends with the world. My selfish passions hold sway. I act in anger. I'm quarreling and fighting. My life has too much conflict. James' diagnosis is correct. I'm a spiritual adulterer. I am too worldly. I've made friends with the world. Now you're ready for the cure of God's jealous grace. But you don't get cured by just realizing God gives more grace. You get cured by receiving that grace. It's like when the doctor does the examination and then gives the diagnosis and then tells you what the cure is. The cure is here, let's say, antibiotics is the cure for your diagnosis of your illness. But you need to take the prescription of the antibiotics and you need to take one tablet and you need to take it three times a day and you've got to complete the course otherwise the cure isn't effective and the course that James prescribes here is a course of humility you see it tops and tails this section from the end of chapter uh, verse 6 to uh, verse 10 Humility tops and tails it. So humility defines what's going on here. Dr. James' prescription for humility in verses 7 to 10 reads like this. First, submit. Submit. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Get in the right position under God. Proud people don't submit to authority. Humble people to do. Let me also say, if you do not submit to your parents, your husband, your elders, your boss, your government, you do not submit to God. You're proud. You need to say, God, I submit myself and all that I am to your kingdom and to your word. I pray for divine deliverance from friendship with the world and my selfish desires. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Posture. Submit. First pill in the box of antibiotics, course of humility. Second, resist. 
Resist the devil and he will free, flee from you. The enemy of God, chief enemy of God, tempts us from the outside. He's a tempter. And he's the prince of worldliness, of course. We submit to God. We don't submit to the devil. We resist the devil. Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Resist the devil. Third pill, draw near. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Friends, come to him. Come to him in prayer. Come to him in prayer. And to seek communion with him, ultimately. Not just to get stuff from him. Uh, see yourself even now, like that prodigal, returning to a father who comes to meet you with open arms. Seek communion with him. He is not a divine vending machine. He is a heavenly father. Draw near. Third pill. Fourth pill. Cleanse and purify. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sins of the hands and sins of a divided heart. See the blood of Christ washing you clean and turn away actively from your sin in your mind and heart as well as those sins that are visible to others in your actions. Fifth pill of the antibiotics here. Mourn your sin. Mourn your sin. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Oh, we take our sin too lightly. Laughter. It's a clear call to grieve our sin, friends. I, I don't think the problem is that we're too mournful. A great weakness is that we weep too little. This has struck me personally this week. I, when was the last time you wept over your sin? When was the last time I wept over my sin? I, I'm not saying that we have to be looking at ourselves and saying, well, I've got to cry, I've got to cry, and beating out. But when was the last time you wept? There is a time for weeping, you know. Ah, I think we take sin too lightly. If we saw our disloyalty with the clarity that God sees, we couldn't help but weep. The Apostle John in Revelation 5 looks out upon the world lost and he weeps. We're all too casual and self-satisfied Perhaps we've lost the sense of the ugliness and damage of sin. I think we're able to look sin in the face and not be moved. And we don't even blush anymore about certain sins in the things that we watch on TV and consume. But there is a time for weeping. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. The way to happiness, to blessedness, is actually through weeping for our sin appropriately so. So take the prescription for humility here, of humility here, friends. That is God's grace to you. Take it regularly. Take the whole course. It should be in practice in our, our daily and weekly lives because God gives grace to the humble. You don't want grace? Humble. And he exalts the humble, it says in verse 10. God welcomes the meek, those who are poor in spirit. He says, come to me like that. I will never ever turn you away and you know what when you receive that kind of grace you begin to give grace to others and relationships heal you begin to see your own sin in the light of his 
amazing grace. And that grace, that forgiveness, becomes the glue that keeps relationships together in the home, in the church. Well, that's Dr. James' analysis of the problem, the cause of conflict, its diagnosis, and its cure. Will you, with meekness, receive that implanted word that is able to save your souls? James chapter 1, verse 21. With meekness, receive this word. In closing, it's interesting to remember, I mentioned this last week, I was preaching out in Cochrane. Jesus, uh, James was Jesus' half-brother. James who writes this letter. Remember, James with the rest of Jesus' brothers did not believe him at first, you know. John tells us that in John chapter 7. Mark tells us his family called him mad, crazy, out of his mind. Possibly James leading the way. He's clearly a, a leader and vocal. But it's interesting that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the risen Christ appeared to more than 500. And then Paul says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. I wonder what Jesus said to him. Do you? doesn't say, he doesn't tell us. What we do know is that from that point on, James was saved. And he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and the author of Scripture. Jesus gave more grace to his brother, who at one time was against him. Passions at war within his heart, a friend of the world and an enemy of God. Proud, not humble. Foolish, not wise. But Jesus gave so much more grace than James's sin. So James became a teacher in the church and even by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of the perfect words of Scripture. What jealous grace that is from Jesus that he could save a sinner like his own brother and use him so powerfully. But what hope that is for us. If he can do that for James, he can do it for you and he can do it for me. But here's the rub. Have you met the risen Christ, friends? Have you met the risen Christ? Has he dealt with your soul? Are you his friend? Have you been wed to him? Have you heard him say to you, I lay my life down for my friends and I will never forsake you? If the answer is no, I've got to ask you, what is stopping you trusting him now? If the answer is yes, then put away your fighting and follow the friend who will never let you down and submit to the husband who's going to pursue you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you indeed do give more grace. I thank you, even as our sin has been exposed this morning, even in our quarreling and fighting, uh, the passions within our hearts, those selfish desires, warring for control, that diagnosis that stands over us all to some degree of friendship with the world. Thank you that you give more grace, that you are jealous for your people. And thank you that you even lay out in your word the way to humility and receiving that grace. I pray that you would increase your grace and its effects amongst us today. I pray that you would heal broken relationships here today. And I pray the risen Christ in it all will be exalted in his name. Amen.
stand and sing once more. He will indeed hold us fast, hold him fast. Even that, those covenant words that we read in Genesis 2.24 about a man holding fast to his wife. The bridegroom holds fast to his bride, the church. He won't let you go. Have you met the risen Christ? Have you looked into his face? Have you heard him speak words of love to you? And if that is the case, then I say to you with the Apostle Peter, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. It is a mighty hand. So that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He is almighty and he is also exceedingly gracious. Go in peace, you're dismissed.